0: Would you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter three, verses one through eleven. Philippians chapter three, verses one through eleven. You ever been wrong about something in your life? It's a pretty easy question, isn't it? On January 14th, the World Health Organization announced that a study out of China had found that there is, quote, no clear evidence of the human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus. Eight days later, on January 22nd, President Trump, in an interview with CNBC, shortly after the first person in America was diagnosed with the coronavirus, he was asked if America was ready for the virus, and he responded that he wasn't worried about it, and he said, quote, we have it totally under control. 26 days after that interview, in an article published on February 17th, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told Americans that the risk of the coronavirus was minuscule and that there was not a need to wear a mask, just be consistent in washing your hands. Have you ever looked back on something and thought to yourself, hmm, I was wrong on that one? Now, to be clear, the point in these references is not politics. It's more current events. You can find article after article, in fact, about ways in which both sides of the politi- political aisle incorrectly and insufficiently responded to this crisis. We can fam- find ways in which the scientific community has changed guidance based on more or, or further study that's been published, and, and that's to be accepted uh, expected as more and more data becomes available. The point that I'm making is that hindsight can be a cruel even harsh reminder of how terribly wrong you and I can be, even when we at one point felt that we were so right. And hindsight can remind us that false, certain, false certainty can have severe consequences. And I submit before you that exponentially worse than being wrong about matters of physical health is being wrong about your spiritual health. Specifically in this passage, we'll examine our righteousness. That might be a term that you say, okay, righteousness, I, I think I kind of grasp what it means, but for our purposes here this morning, think of this as like your right standing before God, your, your, your justification before God. What makes you right in the eyes of God? In Philippians 3, 1-11, the Apostle Paul holds up an account of what he once believed and hoped in for his own spiritual health, for his own righteousness before God. And he urges his readers, he urges us to see the folly of such prideful self-righteousness and to actually look outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, to Christ. So by God's grace in Philippians 3, 1-11, we are going to carefully examine where our hope for righteousness lies. and We're going to look to Christ and live in the righteousness of God through him. Let me say that again. We're going to carefully examine where our hope for righteousness lies, and we are going to look to Christ and live in the righteousness of God through him. So let me read Philippians 3, 1 through 11. The words to this passage are also in your bulletin. If you did not bring your Bible or don't have a Bible with you or on your smartphone or device, they're also in this bulletin that you received. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Writes to the church at Philippi and in God's grace to us as well. He writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So as we consider this topic, this idea of righteousness, we're going to see three things in this passage, how we think we know God, How we know we know God. And how we live as ones who know God. How we think we know God, how we know we know God, and how we live as ones who know God. So first, verses 1 through 6, how we think we know God. In verse 1, again, Paul writes of one of the overarching themes of this letter to the church in Philippi when he writes, Rejoice in the Lord. And he writes this because rejoicing in the Lord is reflecting on what the Lord what Christ has done for you and who Christ is for you. You cannot rejoice if you cannot reflect. Our hope is in what Christ has done, what the Lord has done for us and in us. So with this in mind, now look at Paul's warning in verse 2. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, this is no trouble for me to write to you. It's safe for you. Now, why would he say it's safe for you? Well, he says it in verse 2. Look at this warning. Three times he says to look out. And he mentions these different descriptions of those who would seek to bring spiritual harm to the church at Philippi. Look at that in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And now hang on to those. You might have all sorts of questions that arise in your mind when you read that, but hang on to those and now read verse 3. And we're going to kind of con- contrast verses 2 and 3 together. So he gives these warnings in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's telling the church gathered, reading this letter, receiving these words, look out for those outside of you who would seek your harm. The dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. But What are they doing? Well, here's what's happening. Throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, God saves or redeems a people by displaying, pouring out grace upon them through their faith in his redeeming work. So he is the initial actor. He brings the people to, to himself uh, in grace, this births faith in them, and they believe in him and they are his people. So he brings the people to himself, and then he sets them apart to be identified as his people for his purposes. So think of it like this. He redeems, and then he gives them responsibility. Or you could say he saves, and then he sets apart. But you can't mix the two up. You can't say he gives a responsibility in order to earn redemption, or you can't say he sets you apart for you to do something in order to be saved. No, it has to come one and then the other. And what's happening here is people were mixing up the order and trying to impose this on the church. But think of this principle uh, from the people of Israel. They were redeemed, they were rescued out of Egypt, and then they were given the Ten Commandments, they were given the law, they were given uh, instructed in how to live as the people of God. They weren't instructed how to become his people, but they were instructed in how to live as his people. You with me? Does that catch? Okay. The danger, though, is in reversing these two. It's not having faith in him, but not being a recipient of his grace, but thinking that you belong to him by the acts that you produce, by the things that you do that you think please him or that you think produce a righteousness of your own that measures out, that, that carries you before him, that justifies you in his sight. But that's not how it works. Someone could show up at my house tonight and start sleeping in my guest bedroom and even start eating food out of my refrigerator and uh, using the bathroom and all these things that would look like somebody's a resident of my house and a a member of my family. But unless they were born into my family or uh, through an uh, act of adoption and some kind of formal act of being brought into the family, then they're not a member of the family. And so Paul's warning against this distortion of what is happening here. Paul's referencing what we referred to as Judaizers. These were people who were attempting to combine these two facets of God's work in his people, redeeming and then giving responsibility, into an overall picture of salvation that the Christian has. And he's had distinct echoes of the Old Testament law. And so when he says in verse 3, we are the circumcision, among, you say, okay, what's happening here? Amongst the people of Israel in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of those who were set apart. They were recipients of the covenant, faithfulness of god through his work on their behalf and so paul says we've redeemed we're recipients of the grace of god by the spirit of god we glory in christ jesus because he has become the sacrifice for our sins he has become the means through which god establishes his covenant faithfulness with us christ's act on our behalf now the interesting thing here is that those who do not have in christ but who do not have faith in christ but have faith in themselves have faith in their works. They think they can set themselves apart by their actions and not by their faith in Christ. And so crudely, previously, some of these people who who lived on their own self-righteousness, they would refer to uh, Gentiles who who, who were apart from them. They would refer to them as as dogs, implying they were unclean, unkempt, and, and vile. And in verse 2, Paul says, no, those who do these things, they are dogs. Those who trust in their own actions for righteousness before God, they are, in fact, these actions they think are bringing righteousness are just actions of evildoers. And even those who circumcise themselves, thinking it earns their favor with God, they're just mutilating their flesh. And so here's the picture that we have to understand, bringing this to today. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ in which Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died in our place for our sins, that all who look upon him in faith and repentance for those sins might have life with him. With the gospel clear, if we start adding things to it in regards to going from redemption to then responsibility and start bringing those responsibilities in and making them a means of actually earning salvation, we're we're taking the, the this container this jar of the gospel we're pulling the lid off and we're starting to pull these responsibilities pour these responsibilities that we would add onto it but the thing is with the gospel when you start to add to it you actually lose it and so as you pour things on it what you don't know is that the bottom has opened up and the gospel is actually coming out So Paul is warning against trusting in anything that you might do, even as a Christian, that you might think earns God's favor, when in fact he's saying God's favor, God's righteousness to you, is firmly entrenched, is firmly established, is only given and accomplished through Jesus Christ alone. Paul uses himself as a perfect example of what was once a verse 2 kind of perspective, that has become a verse 3 now perspective in his heart, and he illustrates with his own life in verses 4 through 6. Read verses 4 through 6 with me, or follow along as I read. Actually, picking up in verse 3 for context, for he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul explains his own background here and how he was previously trusting in his own manufactured, carefully developed, carefully cultivated righteousness. He had this pure family heritage. He was a true Hebrew. He was not somebody who joined from outside or married in. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. This was something to be proud of. He was passionate about keeping the Old Testament laws. The second part of verse five says, "You know, when we speak today and refer to someone as a Pharisee, we talk to. We say they're being Pharisaical. You know, it's, we we say it in a, in a negative light, right? Like they're 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 being too rulesy. They're 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 imposing their." their 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 strict uh, rules and expectations upon others and, and we say it in a negative light and, and that's understandable because the pharisees are presented in the gospels uh, uh, as as being so enmeshed in guarding their own self-righteousness that they failed to see christ before them in the work that he was doing or the work that he had come to do and yet paul here he he says i was proud to be a pharisee I was proud of my rigorous pursuit of fidelity to the Old Testament law. The problem was that in this rigorous pursuit of fidelity to the law, I did not know the lawgiver. Further on, he was zealous. He says he was zealous to defend the work and the people of God, even persecuting those who were part of this new group of religious dissenters who believed that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was the promised Messiah. You see that at the beginning of verse 6? He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Nobody could argue with the zeal that I had. And in regards to his own righteousness, Paul was blameless. He was not blameless in the sense that he was perfect, but he was blameless in the sense that if witnesses were called to testify to his ability and resolve to keep the law, none could be found who accused him of hypocrisy or disregard of the law. So Paul holds all of this up, verses 4 to 6. He holds all of his own spiritual background, all of his spiritual credentials, his spiritual resume, his spiritual CV. He holds it all up like shiny medals that he won as a child at the county fair. And he holds them up and says, this was what my worth was found in. But now he realizes that though he once prized them, they are dusty relics of a misunderstood perception of what it meant to know and understand God. And the standard here is as if he's holding up these medals that he won on a little game at the county fair as a four-year-old, and he goes to the Olympics and thinks that by having those medals, he can walk up and, and stand up on the medal platform with the gold medal winners. And it's like, no, Paul, you don't measure up at all. What are the old, dusty medals that you might not see as old and dusty, outdated, outmoded? that you try to hang around your neck and boast of. Where's your righteousness found? Is it found in caring about the right social or political causes? Is it found in voting appropriately? Is it found in being environmentally conscious? Is it found in getting baptized or taking the Lord's Supper or being just generally right about things when everyone else is always so wrong? Is it found in your accomplishments in the classroom or in the boardroom? Or on the athletic field, is it found in your wealth or in your looks or in your attractiveness or in the fact that you have many people around you whom you love and even many people around you whom you give of yourself greatly for? What are the medals or the trophies that you in your heart you want to hold up as your means of righteousness, your means of measuring up before a world? And if there is a God out there, you think a God that is always measuring you up to see if you meet the standard. We live in a moment that is insistent on building one's self-righteousness. through doing all that you can to model virtue, justice, goodness, without giving any thought to the one who is the source of virtue, justice, goodness. How often do we ask ourselves what our hearts actually cling to for value, for purpose, for acceptance, or for praise from others. If it's anything apart from Christ, Paul would say in verses 2 and 3 that you're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, here's the danger of self, that there's the danger of self-righteousness, as we've just seen, but there's something else that's a danger here that we see in verses 1 through 6. It's a danger of sincerity. Have you heard the saying, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere? Well, in these verses, Paul basically says that such a sentiment is entirely incorrect. Nobody can match his sincerity. And yet he was sincerely wrong. In these verses, Paul says that such a sentiment is as dangerous as driving the wrong way down a road, even if you were convinced that you were driving the right way down that road. Though we may admire the sincerity of those who worship differently than we do or have a different understanding of God than we do, brothers and sisters, we sincerely want them to find righteousness before God that is only found in Christ alone. Otherwise, in their sincere efforts, they are like Sisyphus, always pushing that rock up the mountain but unable to get there before falling back down. This is not an indictment on their sincerity. It's an indictment on their sinful hearts and their need for a righteousness outside of themselves. Just as it's an indictment for any of us who professes the name of Christ and even gathers for worship, yet our hearts glory in a righteousness of our own. Dogged sincerity that builds the walls of your own castle of self-righteousness that provides you with a false sense of security in the face of the gathering storm of God's perfect righteousness and justice that is just outside the gates. Now, if we're going to carefully examine where our hope for righteousness lies, we have to be honest in our self-assessment, our self-evaluation And we have to turn our focus towards a solution that tells us not how we think we know God. Isn't that the way that we as human beings are, are hardwired and the world is hardwired to operate? How we think we know God is by the things we do. How we think we are righteous before God is by all that we can accumulate, all the things that we can put on our resume before him to measure up. Paul says, well, let me tell you how we know we know God. This is more serious than we look at with politicians and experts who got prognostications about the coronavirus wrong. Paul holds up his own record and pleads for you and me to not give ourselves towards trusting in our self-righteousness and not trusting in our sincerity either. So how do we know we know God? We'll look at verses 7 to 9. But before I read it, let me ask you something. Well, actually, let me read it, and then I'll ask you this question. Verses 7 to 9, Paul says, after just laying out his spiritual resume, his life resume, for that matter, verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So let me ask you something. How do you know that you love someone? Is it because you schedule time with that person? Is it because you keep in touch some? Maybe you even have an appreciation or an affinity for them. It might be part of it, but Paul shows us a dramatic picture in verse 7 here that it's not like shaking the hand of an old acquaintance who it's nice to connect with over coffee. But Paul shows us a love for God and an understanding of his worth, his value for us. It's not even like scheduling time with him or keeping in touch, but it's running towards it's grabbing hold of like you would grab hold of a loved one that you haven't seen in years because you feel like you are not fully alive apart from that loved one. And so the thing we first must answer is as we start to see that we don't just build our resume, but there's something more comprehensive, more vast. The thing we have to ask ourselves is, do we have intellectual appreciation for Jesus Christ or do we have passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ? And so verses 7 to 9 are going to help us to think through this. But as we walk through this, understand this, as we consider intellectual appreciation versus passionate pursuit, just like you lose the gospel if you start to add to it, you never had Christ or you don't have Christ if he's anything else to you or, or if he's nothing to you but an acquaintance or even someone that you appreciate. He is either Lord and, and the object of the worship and the affection of your heart or he is nothing to you. So how we know we know God, verses 7 through 9. Well, look at this. Look, read this again closely with me and look at the times Paul, Paul mentions the word loss. He says in verse uh, seven, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Then verse eight, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he says, uh, going on in verse eight, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He writes that whatever gain he had, whatever his previous life of self-constructed, meticulously manicured righteousness had brought to him, he was willing to count it as loss. Paul, why are you willing to throw everything in your life out? Everything that you worked so hard to achieve, accomplish, to build yourself up. Why? Well, for the sake of Christ, that I might actually know the God who I thought I was serving. Something we have to hang on to this about this is... The question we have to ask as we read Paul's attitude here is that let's ask ourselves honestly, each of us reflecting on this. What is it about Christ that produces this attitude in Paul? What is it about Christ that causes Paul to say that he is willing to throw everything he holds dear, throw it overboard, if only to have Christ in that boat with him? And here's why we have to ask this. I can't tell or I can't command you to love or treasure or prize Christ. You know? Just like I can tell my son, hey, it's time for you to eat dinner. It's time for you. You got to eat your dinner. It's time for you to go to bed. There are things I I I can tell him to do. I can command him to do. I can instruct him to do. But I can't say, son, you better love me. That's something that's born from within. That's something born from deep. So I can't say to you, love Christ. Come on, you have to love Christ. You have to be joyful in Christ. You have to rejoice in him. You can't force emotion or passion. It has to be found, it has to be tasted, it has to be enjoyed, it has to be, be, be uh, uh, uncovered to be valuable. Jesus highlighted this point when he told the parable of the man who had found a treasure in the field, and he went and sold everything he had to go buy that treasure because it was a treasure that he found. He was willing to cast everything aside that he might have that, which was Christ and his kingdom. So Paul goes on to say that everything that he had was lost to him, And then the first part of verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So this is the answer to the question that we are asking about Paul. What could cause him to do all this? Well, to Paul, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. God went from a deity that he had to keep appeased to a person worth knowing and worshiping with every fiber of his being. We see in this passage a dramatic picture of Paul knocking aside the carefully constructed house of cards that he was, had built to preserve his sense of accomplishment before others, his sense of security that he was doing right himself, his sense of uh, a purpose that he had in his life, that he had a, 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 something that he was giving his life to, and it was a good cause, it was a valuable cause, and he knocks it all aside because what he found was that the vague outlines that all of these different things that he had built his life upon the vague outlines of pursuit of holiness and of righteousness as a Pharisee, the vague outlines of protecting and preserving the faith, the vague outlines of, of thinking he was adhering to God's goodness and to his justice, all of these things, these vague outlines, in Christ he found the one who was the fullness of the outlines brought together. In Christ he found the one who completed all that these other things could not. He found his own self-righteousness was nothing compared with the full substance of Christ. In the second part of verse 8, Paul describes all the things that he once held dear. And then look at what he says. He counts them as rubbish, as garbage, as refuse, as dung. The word in the original Greek that, that this was written in, this is a very strong word, even an impolite word. He counts it as rubbish. The garbage that's been in the can too long and you get back into town after forgetting to empty it before going on vacation. And you you take one whiff and it almost knocks you over. That is what he counts everything that he had previously built up as. Everything that he had held dear with his own self-righteousness, it was rubbish. In his legalism, Paul desired righteousness and even justice. Do you desire righteousness and justice in your world? Do you give yourself to the pursuit of those? In his heart, Paul found these things fully in Christ, who is absolutely perfect in righteousness, who promises to meet our unjust world in perfect justice. In his pride, concerned with his name, with his reputation, with his honor, Paul carefully guarded his image as a holy and devoted man of God. In Christ, he found the love of God who welcomes him to himself and cherishes him, his warts and all, and brings him into his family. In Christ, we receive a new identity. We receive a new family, welcomed and cherished as sons and daughters. And we are invited, we are even told, to lay down our fears of worrying what others will think of us, lay down our fears of not measuring up, and find in Christ the worth that we all the worth in the world in him. For he brings us to himself just as we are. And he makes us new. He gives us new heart, gives us new life, gives us new birth. We are welcomed and cherished as sons and daughters of God. Where life today feels like an endless journey that has too much peril, too much pain in Christ. We are welcomed home to his mercy today that will sustain us amidst the peril and the pain and to the promise of eternity at perfect peace in his presence. In his zeal, he wanted to preserve the people of God and the name of God from defamation. Yet in Christ, Paul found that God in the flesh who speaks to the cries of the human heart and welcomes people from all over the world into his family as he is creating a new people, a new race as Scripture describes it, composed of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language to the glory of his name. And Paul wanted the security to know that what he was doing, that he measured up to the standards of the law of God. He wanted to measure up to expectations and demands that were placed on him. And in Christ, he found the freedom and the fact that Christ has measured up to the greatest demands that would ever be placed on him. And he gives new life, a life that is precious, that his previous life was rubbish in comparison to. And this Christ that Paul sent pounds surpassing worth in, he welcomes you to come to him and live. You may have never realized it, but your life, the cries of your heart, you have been trying to nourish these cries of your heart in a myriad of different ways. But they all take the form of that like, like Spartan kind of meal. Like when you haven't gotten groceries in a long, long time and you've got a little rice and some chips or crackers and a diet soda that your aunt left in the fridge three weeks ago, you don't even drink diet. And that is all that you have for supper. And you think this will sustain me. That is the meal that we are living on in this life apart from Christ. And yet in Christ, there is an abundant meal of mercy that comes from the finest restaurant in the world and nourishes and satisfies us with a feast that we did not know was available until first tasting it. And then after tasting it, you can never get enough of it. But the good news is that the feast of Christ is never ending. So what is that meal? What is composed in it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look on in the second part of verse 8 and then into verse 9. Second part of verse 8, Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. The wonder of the gospel is relationship with God through Christ, being brought into the love of God, known, tasted, and experienced the love of God fully in Christ Jesus. And this is unlocked in in the work of God in destroying our own sense of pride, in our self-righteousness, and crediting to us Christ's perfect righteousness, this righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul's taken us from how we might think we know God to how we know God through faith in Christ and receiving His righteousness, and now he segues to how this righteousness enables us to live in this righteousness of God and not in ourselves. So how we live in Him in verses 10 and 11. Paul's saying that these verses, that out of this faith and the work of God in us, we experientially know His power at work in us. So read on in verse 10 with me. He says that I may know Him, and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, Paul, remember this language of, of being redeemed and then giving respons- getting responsibility. We are redeemed through God crediting Christ's righteousness to us, telling us to lay down our arms, telling us to lay down our efforts to measure up on our own, our efforts to build up our little kingdoms, lay that down and, and receive Christ and receive his righteousness. And then here's how you live in that that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. We're recipients of God's power in bringing us to new life. The same power of God, he's saying in verse 10, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the power that raises us in our deadness and self-righteousness. to new life in Jesus Christ. Christianity is not something you welcome into your life. It's actually new life. Remember, God is the initial actor. It's a new life that is marked by unity with Christ, even sharing in his sufferings and being humbled even to the point of possibility of death for the name of Christ, as the second part of verse 10 says. You see, fascinatingly, in verses 10 and 11, there's this threefold look at the Christian life understood in three ways. We understand God's work of our salvation in new life, uh, in, or new birth, new life, and new hope. So the uh, first part of verse 10 is this new birth, then this new life where I share in his sufferings, even becoming like him in his death. That sounds optimistic, right, Stephen? Well, no, remember the picture of God's work in his people. He saves, then he sets apart. That setting apart can be painful in a world that is not set apart, that is drunk in its self-righteousness. And Christ calls his people to his righteousness. So where faithfulness to Christ can lead to hardship for the name of Christ, this is part of us being united with Christ. But here's the wonder about it and the wonder of Christianity when compared to all other religions. They, everyone else tries to explain the sufferings of the human life. They offer different diagnoses. They offer different solutions. But in Christ, we, are the, we see the one in which God comes down and suffers with us, suffers for us in his cross, even if it should lead to death. Christ is with us because we know Christ has endured death, that in him we might live now and live for eternity with him and that we might know him and that we might taste and see the goodness of the life-giving God that is seen in the death of Christ in our place. And verse 11 tells us death does not have the final word. Even should you die for the name of Christ, you shall experience the promise of the resurrection. And not just spiritually, as it began in verse 10. You see resurrection mentioned in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the spiritual power of him. But it's also experienced or promised that we shall experience it fully, physically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, and wholly. Resurrection from death and all of its effects and grasp, as verse 11 says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is a hope for the Christian that is found in the righteousness of God through Christ. It's otherworldly. This perspective is, in fact, from another place. Our human nature, our makeup, is one that seeks to build our self-righteousness, but we cannot afford to be wrong about where we build our self-righteousness or what righteousness we hope in the efforts to build our own righteousness before God are a virus that are far more insidious than than the coronavirus will we see this and will we look to Christ and his righteousness where has your perspective been previously do you have thoughts or a heart that you are aware of now that you look back on and realize how mistaken you were? Or Christian, will you look at this and see the wondrous work of Christ in you, be reminded of it yet again, and rejoice after this reminder. Rejoice in Christ. Wherever you may be, I urge you to carefully examine where your hope for righteousness lies. Look to Christ and live in the righteousness of God through him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. It is through him we pray. It is through him we hear your word. It is through him we hope. It is through him we rejoice. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.